Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water, no ice, outside us, no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is ego delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, beyond all our praises, the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus, one true Samadhi extinguishes evils. It purifies karma, dissolving obstructions. Then where are the dark paths to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our true nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the moonlight of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the third day of our summer seven-day session, uh, 10th of January 2022, and we're going to continue exploring the the life and teachings of Tangan Roshi. Um, We'll start on um, an article uh, called Awaken to the True Self, which um, comes from Zen Centrum uh, website. It was also uh, reprinted in uh, the Zenbo that we've been reading from. It's um, this article is based on um, a partial script from a conversation. Uh, with um, Tangan Roshi at Bukokuji by um, Takashi Aoyama and it was published in a monthly journal Kongetsu no Tera in July of 1984 
and uh, it was then translated into English uh, by uh, Belinda Attaway Yamakawa, who also added some footnotes. Uh, just to say something about Belinda, um, she uh, was clearly already Tangan's uh, translator back in, in uh, 1984 and, and from before, I think, as well. And she also acted for many, many years as his interpreter when giving Taisho and uh, in Doksan. She, she was Amer American, born, married to a Japanese um, Zen priest at another temple. And um, she was still there in 2001 when we went to Bukokuji, um, still acting as an interpreter. Um, she, some people may know her because she also did a translation of a really lovely little book called um, Novice to Master, an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity, which is um, about uh, Morinaga Roshi, a, a um, Rinzai master. She died relatively young um, in 2016. So turning now to the article itself, Awaken to the True Self. So it's Tangan Roshi speaking here in this article. When I was 17 years old, I had the good fortune to read a book called In Shitsuroku by Professor N. Ryohan, a noted scholar of the Ming Dynasty. This is a book of instruction which the professor compiled for his son, Tenkei. The term In Shitsu means to be, to be decided without one's being aware of it. That is to say that the fortunes, sunshine and shadow, up and downs, which befall a person are naturally determined without his knowing it by his own past actions, his own virtue and vice. Upon carefully reading this book, it became clear to me that there is a path to be followed and I resolved then to follow that path. According to the book, Professor N first came to deeply believe in karmic retribution through a fortune teller named Ko. He then met with Zen master Unkoku, who impressed upon him that karma is only one side of the picture. Thus, he writes to his son Tenkei that one can take responsibility for the construction of one's own world that it is not a matter of living out one's life wedged into a predetermined mould, but rather, by virtue of one's own efforts, it is possible to move, if even just a step, closer toward one's aim. Somebody was asking me in Doksan about karma. 
and it's an, an, an incredibly big topic. We could spend many, many, many Taishos um, exploring the, the subtleties of, of karma. Um, but we'll, we'll try to just make some, some general points here. Karma is not the same as fate. It's not something uh, entirely fixed. Um, I think that probably the the, um, the generally held view of karma is that is is summed up by this quote. The game of life is a game of boomerangs. Our thoughts, deeds, and words return to us sooner or later with astounding accuracy. And that's that's um, has some truth to it, as people may have experienced. Um, but it's it's more complicated than that. Um, and strictly strictly speaking, we shouldn't call, talk about karma. It gets shortened to karma, but we should talk about karma vipaka, which means um, cause and effect. Karma causes vipaka effects. But here's something that the the um, Buddha says in in one of the Pali suttas. If it be true that human beings must reap according to their deeds, in that case there is no religious life, nor is there any opportunity afforded for the complete extinction of suffering. But if the reward a person reaps accords with his or her deeds, in that case there is a religious life, and opportunity is afforded for the complete extinction of suffering. In other words, our present isn't uh, in some rigid way determined by our past, but rather um, we, can, we can shape how the past affects us to some degree through our work on ourselves, to the choices we make in the present. So in some sense, um, we, we some particular ways, we can in fact sort of influence the past through uh, change in the present. Um, somebody said about karma, between each cause and its effects can come succeeding causes, which then influence and modify the effect of the original cause. I think this gets at, at the complexity of of uh, the, the laws of karma. There's one, there's one other point that is made also in the Pali Sutras, is that not everything that happens to us or that we experience or feel is, is um, because of personal karma. The Buddha gives a, gives a list, which we haven't gotten to time to get into the, the, the finer points of, but it gives you some idea of what he's talking about. 
He says, some feelings arise based on phlegm. In other words, the humours the, the, um, that are also in medieval uh, Western medicine. In other words, one's constitution, you could say. Um, based, some feelings arise based on phlegm, based on internal winds, based on an imbalance of bodily humours, from the change of the seasons, from uneven care of the body, from assaults, from re the result of karma. That some feelings arise from the result of karma, we can know for oneself, and everyone understands that to be true. Now any contemplatives or sages who are of the doctrine and view that whatever an individual feels, pleasure, pain, neither pleasure nor pain, is entirely caused by what was done before, overstep what they themselves know and what is agreed on by people in general. Therefore, I, I say that those contemplatives or sages are wrong. So, okay, that's, that's um, it's fairly clear what he's talking about, but how do we know what, what, where, what comes from? Well, we, we don't. Um, the... Uh, Buddha named five imponderables, and one of them was karma, the laws of karma. That in their depth and complexity, unless we're fully enlightened, then um, it's the, all its ins and outs will not necessarily be be apparent to us. But really, the the, the point here. Um, is that though there are the certain things that are, we could call fixed karma, except at least for this lifetime, such as who our parents are or what country we were born on, in things like that, um, our genetic makeup, um, yes, there are those fixed things, but there's also much that's malleable. And what is important is, is how we play the cards we've been dealt. And uh, really, in a very uh, definite way, we, we create our own heavens and hells through our response to uh, circumstances. I'll give some examples of how our present, present attitude might affect karma from the past. Um, this, is, this is sort of a classic example where if you say you was got um, had an addiction, a substance abuse problem, and because of a mistake you make, you end up uh, being sent to prison for that, that crime. But once you get into prison, you're, the fact that you've been in prison shocks you into realizing you have a problem. And so while you're in prison, you take up um, uh, rehab, you, you uh, work through stuff, and you then maybe train as a, as a uh, drug and alcohol counselor. So you take we could, what you could say would be negative, negative karma, and through, through your response to it, you create positive karma. And this, I think, is what um, Tangan is talking about when, uh, or more broadly, um, when he says we, one can take responsibility for the construction of one's own world. 
It is not a matter of living one's life wedged into a predetermined mould, but rather, by virtue of one's own efforts, it is possible to move, if even just a step closer towards one's aim. And then what that, that for Tangan clearly the aim is to serve and to awaken, as we'll see, as we see as we read further into the article. But, but also note here um, something that may be somewhat foreign to us. Um, he says, it's, it's possible to move if even just a step closer towards one's aim. So Im implicit in that is, is um, working from a very long view. And elsewhere we heard Tangan talk about true eternal life. That, that um, even if in this lifetime we take just very small steps towards awakening, that, that, that those steps are not wasted. We, we, in some way we get we can continue that momentum uh, after we, we, we die to this world and are born to the next. I think many of us suffer from uh, the, the thirst that we have for immediate results. And we can also feel a sense of, of um, uh, we've, got to, we've got to get it all done here and now. But if we can have a long view, we can, it can steady us enormously. And we we can then then also just accept that that um, some have a smoother ride than others. Some of us have more obstacles. We have we go more slowly, and that's because of our different karmic inheritance. But that's what we have to work with, and making peace with that, and accepting where we are. Because until we accept where we are, we can't work from that place at all. One of the one of the paradoxes of um, uh, karma is um, that, on the one hand, um, an understanding of karma means that we we need to take responsibility for our own circumstances and work with them, do um, work from that place. But at the same time, we don't need to take our karmic inheritance personally. One, because many causes and conditions lead to, to our present state. And also because if, of, the, of the aspects of our present state which are um, ripening karma, we can see that we're not the same person um, now as any of the former selves of our own uh, being who set in motion the different streams of karma that we inherit. Because there, there is no fixed person. We're changing all the time. We're, we're evolving. 
Tangan's teacher, Harada Roshi, said, there is no one, only karma. There is no self that's, that's fixed. And a deep, deep understanding of this um, is a real, um, you could say, an antidote to the inner critic, which we'll, we'll explore further, if not today, then, then tomorrow. So he came to this, reading this book um, in Shitsuroku, he came to the, the realization that um, uh, he needed to take responsibility for his, his life, as he puts it, the construction of his own world, and that uh, he could, he could um, set himself on the, on the course that he wanted to follow. He says, from childhood on, as though in search of something, I was always a rather rebellious youth. In junior high school, I kept thinking that I had never really been given the opportunity to understand the reason for living. And he, he, he clearly, his re rebellion came out of his resentment of this fact. You could say that the most important topic of all was left out. It's, it's no wonder so many of us feel, in some sense, adrift if we've, this has never been addressed. And certainly this is something a lot of young people suffer from. One of, one of the ways that um, that's being addressed now in our schools is through, uh, for, for um, indigenous kids, for Maori kids, um, learning about maturanga Maori, learning about whakapapa. These things can powerfully give a sense of direction, a reason for living. He goes on, I did not much care for Buddhist priests. I had the preconceived idea that they wore funny clothes, talked a lot of nonsense, and led lives of comfort and ease. But this book really addressed itself to that something I had been searching for since childhood, and it has surprised me to realize that the lesson came through a priest. Although Inshitsuroku is at heart Confucian, not Buddhist, it is a Zen master who clearly points the way. And incidentally, the man who translated the book, Harada Sogaku Roshi, was to become five years later my Zen teacher. And then he sets out his aim, what it was that he wanted to work towards. And it's, um, it, it's an example of, of a positive aim, a positive motive. So not just being motivated by our own personal suffering, but something more, more generative, something more joyful. It's also a unique expression of vow. It's not something that comes from Buddhism or Confucianism or anywhere else, but, but really emerges from um, Tangan's own uh, being. And 
And this is what he, he came to. When I was 18 or 19 years old, I resolved to become like a chair. That's his aim, to become like a chair. That was because a chair doesn't refuse its services to anybody. It just takes care of the sitter and lets him rest his legs. After it has served its purpose, no one gets up and thanks or offers words of kindness to the chair. It will be more likely to get kicked out of the way. What's more, the chair doesn't grumble or complain or bear a grudge, but just takes whatever is given. When there is a job to be done, it puts forth all its energy without picking and choosing according to its desires. I was thinking, wouldn't it be great to have such a heart? I wrote on a big sheet of paper, be like a chair, and every day took note of how close I had come. If even a little dissatisfaction arose, I would regard that as an, as an embarrassing state of mind for a chair. I considered how thoroughly I was of use to others. A chair doesn't plop itself down on top of the sitter, right? What was positive about all this was that, if I possibly could, I wanted to put others before myself. The endeavor was not at all forced or unnatural. It arose from life itself and was enjoyable, not painful. So even before he, he um, got into Buddhism, when he re really knew nothing about it, already there was this, this, this deep bodhicitta welling up. This, this longing to serve. It's really quite, quite an exceptional aspiration. During the time I was following this practice, I went to climb Mount Kimpoku, a rather small mountain of the Jukoku Pass at Yugawara. As I climbed that day, I could think of nothing but my own selfishness. Shedding tears, I repeatedly reflected and repented. I'm no good, I'm no good. As I made the 30-minute 30 ascent up the mountain trail. So it would seem it's a pretty, it's a pretty, um, self-judgmental statement, but uh, we'll see. We'll see how what, what, what unfolds. So he was saying to himself, I'm no good, I'm no good, as he, ca he came up the, the, the path up the mountain. There was a large stone statue on the flat crest of the mountain. If I saw it today, I might know what it is, but at that time I had no idea. Along the way, there had been a number of figures of Kanon, so I think perhaps the statue was of Shakyamuni Buddha. But in those days, I knew nothing of Buddhism or of paying homage to its founder. I had, however, committed to memory the rules of Professor Shoin Yoshida's preparatory school, and I began to chant those rules, 
through chanting, I must have entered into a purer state of mind. So we touched on this experience of his in one of the earlier talks. But there's, um, there's just a footnote about this, this um, school. Shoin Yoshidi's preparatory school attracted many of the brightest and most idealistic youths of the later Tokugawa era. Some of these students became great political leaders, instrumental in establishing of the Meiji Restoration in 1868. So I don't know what the, the rules were, but obviously they were aspirational, um, high ideals. And so the young Tangan um, ardently chants these rules. And, and something happens. He says he entered into a purer state of mind, um, likely a, a kind of chanting samadhi. I crossed to the other side of the mountain, which formed a precipice. A valley had been gouged out below, and beyond the valley stretched the Pacific Ocean. To one side, I could see the rolling hills of the Izu Peninsula. Transfixed by the mountain landscape, the wind blew into me from the valley floor, and I felt as if I were growing bigger and bigger. In retrospect, we could say that I was experiencing the reality of being one with and cared for by all things of this world, experiencing the greatness of the life I have been given. But at the time, I just felt myself becoming bigger and the sensation of being protected by everyone. At that point, I couldn't contain myself anymore. So in a giant voice, I shouted my name seven or eight times into the far off horizon. But still, I couldn't keep still. And suddenly I dashed off down the mountain path, flying down a mountain trail as risky but I made it back to Atami Station without tumbling into the valley below. It was as if I shot down in one breath. As, anybody, as nobody knew my state of mind at the time, if I had tripped and fallen down into the valley, everyone probably would have thought that I had committed suicide. So here's um, this extraordinary flip. He's coming up weeping about his, his um, um, poor performance on his, his, his vow to become like a chair, saying to himself again and again, I'm no good, I'm no good. And then something happens. There's this um, Greek term, enantiodromia, um, of, of the tendency of extremes to flip into the opposite. And this seems to be what happens. He goes from this, this state of, of, uh, of despair and then suddenly uh, everything opens up for him. Um, it's a little bit s similar perhaps to what happened to the uh, spiritual teacher Eckhart Tolle who, who uh, was in a state of suicidal despair when he experienced a kensho. Um, Tangan Roshi was asked whether his experience could, could properly be called a kensho, and, and he said no, not kensho, but kangi. Uh, the word kangi 
is composed of two characters, both of which mean joy or happiness. Um, the Roshi described it as deep glad, alive. What, what perhaps um, distinguishes this, this experience from, from a, uh, this kangi experience from Kensho is that um, uh, it's life-transforming, joyous, but still um, a strong uh, sense of self there, which is um, expressed through his, his uh, bellowing his name into the, into the uh, space. He continues, Though I felt at the time that I would often return to pay my respects to that dear, beloved mountain, I have not been back even once. And there's a footnote. Um, the Roshi did return to Mount Kempaku subsequent to this interview. He paid a visit to the mountain on his 60th birthday, an especially important occasion in Japanese culture. When he returned to the temple, the Roshi most enthusiastically and merrily reported two things. One was his astonishment at how long it took him to make the climb, this time as compared to their say, that day some 42 years earlier. The other was his wonder at a beautiful flower he saw on the summit. Since that time, a bright and changed world unfolds before me. For one or two months after the experience, everything, down to the pebbles along the roadside, brilliantly glistened. It is an intimate, friendly life. So um, this experience of joy was really life-changing, but there was also some wearing off of the intensity of the initial experience. Which, is, uh, which often happens with these, these openings. And that's another thing which I guess you could say marks it um, as something sh short of Kensho. Though that's true to say that now and relatively shallow Kenshos also wear off to some degree in their intensity. I remember well being filled with the knowledge of being together, part of the same life. At the, sa at the time, I still knew nothing of Zazen and such, but the walls separating me from others had collapsed. My life had become a world somehow without discrimination, so I felt as if I could even chat with the chirping sparrows. Later, when I began to do Zazen, I could receive the teachings of my master, which I had so sought since childhood, with a completely open and reception, receptive mind. So, he, I guess he had, he had the great good karma to, when he came to um, his Zen training, to be very receptive to it to be able to um, 
have this this open yes attitude that he talks of elsewhere. Without theoretical understanding and without being able to explain what happened, I had tapped into the very joy of life and I determined from then on to dedicate my life to replaying my gratitude. As it was wartime, I felt that the one thing I could do immediately to help was to go first before the bullet. Propelled by my spirit of helping others, I joined the army. And we, we heard about this earlier on. Uh, but in, in a footnote here, um, the Roshi was asked about this, about this going to war, whether he would he'd do so now. And um, he, he said no. Um, that um, now he's definitely opposed to war. He said that after he began training, um, he came to understand that all human beings are brothers and sisters and that even if you, you're to be killed, you don't kill somebody else. But the fact that he, he did go um, and join the um, uh, army in, in a spirit of, of um, offering and service is, is um, it, it's a reminder that um, pe people can sometimes do the, do the wrong things for the right reasons. And the, 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 the magnetic force of the, the ideology that, that they were living under um, was, was very, very powerful. So he joined the army. I was quite willing from the beginning to die. Like everyone else at that time, I felt it was only natural to give my life in the war cause. But although I repeatedly found myself in perilous situations, including one year as a prisoner of war, I always mysteriously and narrowly escaped. From that time on, whether or not my actions were recognized or appreciated by those around me, the feeling that I had to put all of my efforts into what I knew I had to do became stronger and stronger. Then in Showa 21, it's 1946, I began Zen training as a layman, and in Showa 24, I was ordained as a priest. The next section is, is headed, What is Buddha? The single most fundamental point in the Buddhist sutras is taking refuge, or namu in Japanese. This taking refuge in the three treasures, Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, forms the foundation for all the precepts. To receive the triple refuge is to enter into the world of the Buddha. Taking refuge in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha is another um, example of a of um, a a positive motivation for our practice. 
he goes into the meaning of this more. The Sanskrit term namu and the Chinese term kie both express the same spirit and, in, and both terms mean to go back to your true home. And, and when, a, when a Japanese person recites, I take refuge in Buddha, they say namu kie butsu, namu kie butsu. Both terms mean to go back to your true home. To really go back home, in the spirit of kie, one must untrust oneself and let go of the body and mind that he has up to now called me. If that thing we refer to as me exists, then namu means to give it all up for the sake of the truth. So namu and kie are the Sanskrit and Chinese expressions which mean to place one's full reliance, body and soul, on Buddha. Now, when we chant namu kie butsu, I take refuge in Buddha, what do we mean by Buddha? What is Buddha? This is the question the person practicing comes to feel they must answer for themselves. What is it that we're putting our refuge in? Taking refuge in, rather. What, what are we flinging ourselves into the arms of? If we are not clearly aware of the reality of a Buddha, an awakened being who has thoroughly cast off everything to the last, we cannot really let go ourselves. So the question is, who or what or in what form is Buddha to be found? First of all, is there really anything of truth in this world for which you could not let go of everything? If such a truth really does exist, I would say that you could surrender everything for it. Going further, if this truth happens to be just the thing you are most seeking, then the more willingly you will let go of everything for it. Finally, we could say that what we most ardently wish for is to possess everything without exception, to have everything as one's own. If this truth is just such an all-encompassing state in itself, then you wouldn't hesitate to give up everything for it. Our desires are not such that we can say, oh, just to be right here will be plenty. Desire being insatiable, we cannot be satisfied until we have it all, to the very last. Some gentle-mannered souls may act with reserve and declare that they have plenty, but should you ask them, is this really enough? They will likely answer, well, if possible, just a touch more. However, if you know that regardless of what you seek, your every wish will be granted, you will be willing to lay down your whole self. If whatever you seek is yours, isn't it correct to say that there is no loss? If a child is asked to name the one thing that is of most value, he will answer that it is his life. There is awareness of life. 
if there is a life which cannot be lost for all eternity, you would, clearly, you would gladly give up everything for it. And then there is material wealth. If by simply wishing for something it is provided, why should you hesitate to give up anything? Finally, if you know that you will be released from all restraints to live in perfect freedom, I would say it is all right to give up everything for that. If these three conditions can be yours, I believe, believe you will be ready to cast off your small self. We can say that that which is called Buddha is in itself the perfect embodiment of life, wealth, and freedom. Eternal life as one's own. Complete freedom in everything. Possession of all the truth of this world. If you know this is Buddha, the heart which entrusts itself cannot help but well up. He's making an important point here that our, our letting go, our letting go of the body and the mind, um, comes out of a place of recognition of what we're letting go for. It's um, something we can, we can force on ourselves um, without this insight into the nature of what it is we're giving stuff up for. a little bit like um, in the in our um, return of merit we we, we uh, return merit to um, Shakyamuni Buddha Manjushri Bodhisattva Aulakita Bodhisattva Hydra Bodhisattva first of all as if they needed merit surely they've got plenty of it and uh, can we really give away our merit? Surely if we've earned it, it's, it's, um, it's ours. It's, it's not uh, something that, that becomes depleted through its being given away. If, in fact, if anything, it, it, it um, multiplies, it grows. If nothing can be lost, then there's nothing to lose. He continues. When you examine yourself, you find that something is missing. Or even if you feel fulfilled now, you are anxious that this contentment will be snatched away. You feel that you have, you feel that you just have to find something more stable. At this time, Buddha's existence cannot help but be revealed to you. Although Buddha mind is variously revealed through each individual's own talents and gifts, Buddha is now here 
but where is here? One master answered this question, saying, help yourself to tea. Another pointed here when he commented, what fine weather today. That which we most deeply yearn for is the thing that is already most fully present, already the very closest to us. Thus, our ancestral teachers, according to their own circumstances at hand, have, already, already, have always shown that Buddha is now here. So we place our focus now, here. While what you seek is really now and here, you habitually think of it as something out there, outside yourself, so you search and search in vain. What you are looking for is already wholly and completely yours. There is nothing miserly about it. It knows no limits. You are the master of this life. When you sincerely take refuge, namu, now and here, you will find in yourself what is most secure. That which the heart most ardently yearns for. you will find pure, essential Buddha nature. Perhaps you wonder if we do Zazen in pursuit of that which we most want. No, no, we do not. Doing Zazen is Buddha. Doing Zazen is already the full expression of Buddha nature. We are quickly caught up in the form of things, readily pulled in by what others have to say. This is such that if you are told, hey, doing Zazen is Buddha, you might readily respond, yes, doing Zazen is Buddha, isn't it? In that case, I will have to say, no, you're wrong. Goes on to describe a meeting of of Pure Land uh, practitioners, where the the uh, priest delivering the sermon uh, kept saying, "Just as it is, just this is salvation. Salvation is just this." But then, when his followers responded saying the same thing, he would always say, "No, you're mistaken," and uh, continue on with his sermon coming around to say the same thing again, just as it is, this is salvation. But then when his, the participants agreed and repeated his statement, he would say, wrong. Finally, at the end, um, he, he finished his talk again, saying, everyone has listened well, all right? Just as it is, this is salvation. And then at that, one of the people in the audience shouted, Thank you! And did a prostration. And then the priest approved, nodded. And, and Tangan adds, In sum, if one grasps at this salvation, which is just as it is, one is already counter to its truth. Zazen is just like this. When one is doing Zazen, a thing called the self does not put in an appearance at all. 
It is interesting to observe what a great discrepancy there is between theoretical understanding and truth itself. Taking a dump, take a dumpling, for example, without actually sampling it, any explanation, regardless how thorough, would give only a rough idea of the flavor of that dumpling, but never its essential taste. Without actually chewing it, you cannot know its actual flavor. Depending on what we are eating, our individual way of tasting it may be different, I suppose, but the fact of having really experienced the taste is the same with everyone, isn't it? The reality of really tasting that dumpling is about the same regardless of whether you're eating it for the first time or if you're an old hand at eating dumplings. Zen is just like this. From the first time you sit, you can fully experience the flavor of Zen. Fully experience the flavor of Zen, whether you're a, you're a beginner or an old hand. Taste that dumpling for yourself. Not reading about it on the menu, but eating it. That's, that's what we're called on to do. Sounds pretty, pretty nice, actually, to taste that dumpling. To take it, to chew it, to swallow it. We'll stop here and recite the four vows. All beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha. I vow to attain all beings without number. I vow to liberate endless blind passions. I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain.